so many Welcome people. to Shop Talk Live, broadcast live from Fine Woodworking Live on Facebook Live. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> I'm your host and fine woodworking editor, Tom McKenna. With me this episode is Executive Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. Special Projects Editor Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. And Web Producer Ben Strano. As always, Jeff Rose is manning the camera, and we're here with like 250 of our woodworking friends. Uh, today, we'll be having some very special guests joining us, uh, Vic Tesselin, Peter Follinsby, Joshua Klein, and with us now is Joe Taylor, who is the Director of Sales of Rikon Tools. Hi, Joe, everybody. Welcome. Hey, Joe. Uh, thank Thanks you for, for having me. Thank you for coming. Uh, Rikon is one of our big, big sponsors, and... Uh, They've brought a bunch of cool new tools for, to the show. you want to talk about them, Joe? Yeah, we're really excited to be a part of uh, Fine Woodworking Live for 2017. Uh, proud to be a sponsor. And we brought a full assortment of products in all the different ranges from bandsaws to sanders to lathes, which some of those tools we'll be demonstrating tomorrow in, in uh, the demo room. So please stop by, check it out. Um, we'll have some good things going on. One of the other things that we brought along with us too is, um, you know, Rikon's been known for their bandsaws yeah. ever since yes. our inception. And, um, you know, over the years, we probably sold about, you know, 10 to 15,000 bandsaws. And what we've done this, this past year was we introduced a new tools guide system that's, that's um, on our updated models of the 10326, 10342, and et cetera. So um, we have a retrofit kit available, which allows the user to not use tools anymore. So they could actually um, just release two knobs that are on the spring-loaded guide adjustments, and they have two adjustment pins to adjust your bearings cool. to the blade, which is really cool. And that's both on the top and bottom. And for those who have the older model, 10325, the retrofit kit's available. So we have some of those here. Awesome. Um, check out our website for additional information or stop by the booth and, you know, check them out. Yeah. These are... Oh. Go ahead. Can I talk? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. I, I always do, right? Yeah. These are some of the coolest, actually, guides I think of, yeah. I've seen because I do like that uh, you can... You, the spring-loaded action on the bearings, you just pinch them with one hand and then you tighten the knob with the other, and because that's one of the more frustrating parts of changing your bandsaw blade, right? Is oh, yeah. adjusting the guides afterwards, mm -hmm. and um, anything to make that quicker and easier is fantastic. Yeah, it is. We're really excited about it. Um, some of the other features on the bandsaws that we improved on is our fence. We have a, a quick adjust uh, fence system. Bandsaws have the tendency to drift a little bit when they're cutting, mm -hmm. um, so now. From the top of the fence, there's a handle with a cam where you could actually adjust and pivot the fence to the left or to the right to compensate for that drift, which has been, you know, it's a great help for the end user and it's been great for us. And we'll have retrofit kits available for that as well in the next, you know, few months. Okay. And these fit only the Rikon? Well, only the Rikon tools. bandsaws okay. right now. Yeah. Right now. See, that's the next question. <laughs> when, right. Right now. when he's going to When is the next generation? When? Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, that's something that we talked about as a group and, you know, because there's so many different bandsaws on the market and how the guide posts are assembled. Right. So we're trying to come out with a way where we could have a kit available. Um, I wouldn't expect anything for 
I'd hate to put a timestamp on it because then everybody will be calling. We're, me. we're recording. Right. So. Yeah, <laughs> and then we're recording. So, um, but we are looking into it. And hopefully down the road, we'll have so something. I, yeah, I think what I hear you really saying is that we should all go out and get a new bandsaw. Yeah. So you want to buy the right kind <laughs> of bandsaw, basically. Right. <laughs> well, we are giving yeah. one away. Thankfully. Yeah, we're, we're excited thank, about thanks that. Thanks to Rikon for offering up that 14-inch saw for uh, a lucky winner, and hopefully they brought their pickup. Yes, but actually, no. We're, we'll pick up the. We decided we'll pick up the shi- the shipping on uh, on it if, if needed. So, um, hey, one of the things that's interesting about Rikon, we saw it last year at, in IWF, was your. I don't know if it's the right word is partnership, but with was it Nova? Uh, no, no, it wasn't Nova. Record Power. Record Power. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Tom. Oops. Ben, hey, yeah, just gotta, that, cut that part out. Zip that out. So it's Record Power. <laughs> yeah, so um, we've developed a partnership with Record Power to distribute um, all their lathe chucks and jaws and their carving sets here in the U.S. And it, it's been a great partnership for us. Um, we do some work together on the side, you know, in Europe as well. So, you know, having that partnership with them provided us the opportunity to offer a great product line to, you know, the U.S. customers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you guys are known for, I mean, you guys were the, one of the first uh, companies to really perfect that MIDI lathe, that yeah. benchtop lathe, and yeah. really hyped it up. And so it's a, it seems like a perfect, perfect Yeah, so pair. it's a perfect match um, for that. Because, you know, one of the things, you know, being in the stationary tool business is you don't have a lot of accessories. But now that we have that partnership with Record, we're, we're able to offer, you know, the end user a full selection of not only the, the lathe, but the chucks. And soon to come, we'll have some turning tools available. Cool. From from uh, Rikon. I from thought Rikon. I saw a Rikon fella walking around with a turning tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. really it's, excited about that. Um, I wasn't sure whether we could talk about that today. Well, I'm probably not supposed to, <laughs> so my boss will probably kill me. But um, this is actually the first event that we're showing it. We just got them in last week after some you know development and testing, and uh, we brought the first samples here to try out. So awesome. cool. hopefully we'll get some opinions. You know, we'll, we'll get some menus to try them out on the lathe to see what you know what kind of feedback we can get which is always great you know yeah. before we go into mass production so we're excited about that awesome yeah awesome and that'll be in the uh, tool demo room right? that'll be in the tool demo room yes perfect perfect yes. hey well I appreciate you coming on well thank um, you guys we'll see you later on at the show and during the banquet and such yeah I appreciate it and thank you and um, you know looking forward to next year's event hopefully we'll be here alright great yeah, thank you guys to thanks, thanks Joe thanks Joe alright alright well we're uh, we're still live yeah, and we're going to have more guests, aren't we? And we're going to have more guests. It's like um, Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, see you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Um, we have all these guests, and I'm not going to say anything funny. You can say whatever or you want. Mean, or mean. No. Or I'm going to yeah. be a polite young gentleman. <laughs> well, at least a gentleman. A polite just, one. Just keep rambling. I'm not young. Oh, we, we hey, finally We finally have Peter our guests. be here. <laughs> all right. This is guests. All right. Well, we have, uh, we have another special guest uh, today. Um, eminent 17th century furniture maker, uh, Peter Follinsby, who's giving a, a, a class here at Fine Woodworking Live. And uh, welcome. Thank you, Peter, for coming in. Uh, hey, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're there. looking very good for someone who was a furniture maker in the 17th I know. century. Yeah, I've got a lot of years on me. <laughs> <laughs> An eminent 17th century furniture yeah. maker. Yeah. Yes. So before, you know, we uh, ben, ben was very kind to... Uh, grab some questions to try to stump our uh, our guest with but before we hit you with one just curious about how you um, developed an interest in 17th century furniture it's it's sort of a, a slice of a different 
different uh, view. I don't know I, how to describe it. I just it, couldn't though. hack the 18th century. You know, there's too many people who were good at that, and, and nobody was looking at oak furniture. So, uh, well, I just accidentally sort of stumbled into it yeah. with a fellow that I collaborated with, uh, now Jenny Alexander, John Alexander okay. then. Yep. And um, I had been a chair-making student of Alexander's, and... Uh, Together, we started to study that work in museums, in Winter Tour Museum and the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And, and I grew up in uh, the south of Boston uh, in a town that was established in 1635. So I knew all the areas where all that furniture came from. So it really resonated with me in a lot of ways. Neat, neat. And you still uh, demonstrate or teach at Plymouth? Uh, no, no, I worked for 20 years at Plymouth okay, Plantation, so. and uh, about two years ago, I struck out on my own. Awesome. Uh, well. So I teach around the country and write um, in the middle of my second book. And, uh, awesome. Do we have time for me to ask a question? Or do we have yeah. to jump? Yeah. yeah. Come on, so I, I was curious, because uh, so we co-sponsor the working wood in the 18th century thing down at yeah. Williamsburg every yeah. year. I, you know, so I've been to that several times, and I always find it really interesting to hear Mac or uh, Corey talk about how they look at a piece of furniture and decipher how they think it was made. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious as to when, when you're building furniture, I mean, how did you figure it out? How did, so why is it 17th century? Are you using... What are you doing? Are you doing, like, genuine... <laughs> what what is that all about? I mean, what are, you, so, are, you, are you going and looking at old furniture and oh, yeah. trying to decipher how it was made? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the key. I, in fact, I was just talking to Al Breed moments ago, and uh, uh, he used to work at the Museum of Fine Arts. I never was employed there, but was very fortunate to meet the curators there and had access to that collection to study the collection to discern how all these objects made. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so it's sort of reverse engineering of... Right. Evoke furniture. And is that, I mean, what's the, for you, what's the appeal of that style of making furniture as opposed to saying what was done by Sam Maloof or, you know, Krinov? You... <laughs> uh, well, when I looked at that oak furniture, the first thing that struck me was, oh, I could do that. <laughs> and uh, um, it's, it's a very direct craft and it starts with greenwood so I'm starting right. with a log I'm not buying boards that are seasoned and so forth so I'm starting with a log and uh, working with uh, wedges and mauls and right. hatchets and it's man's work and well it's uh, it's just my work it's something yeah. that really just clicked with me you know how a lot of us we find uh, you know what what it is that connects to us yeah. and and that furniture really uh, really hit me the right way yeah I didn't mean that like I just meant that that was like yeah, that's yeah, tough yeah, work yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I, Peter, on the letters I follow you on on Instagram and uh, I saw that you built a new shop yes um, yeah. looks uh, looks pretty cool do you want to talk about that uh, the process uh, behind yeah, it yeah how much time you got um, <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a lifelong dream to build a building and I had never really done it I had worked on timber framing projects before as yep. a student in classes and things and just didn't envision that I would have uh, an opportunity to build one of my own uh, and as I said, for 20 years, I was working in the museum, so that my shop was there. And then when I left there, I needed a place. So uh, I found out my town, I could put up a shed 
uh, without a permit as long as it was under 200 square feet. <laughs> so my shop is 12 Perfect. by 16, which fits two workbenches and a lathe and my tools, and that's all I need. My wood is outside, yeah. and, uh, and so there's no electricity to the shop. It's all daylight, cool. and, uh, and it overlooks a tidal river, so it's, uh, it's where I want to be. That's pretty peaceful. Spot. Well, yeah. l- l- let me get to you. L- let me get to our reader question, um, and this one is from Mike, and he says, "I have a Vaughn broad hatchet that I want to sharpen. The problem is that there is a back bevel which seems unusual for a broad hatchet. Should I grind away the back bevel and sharpen it like a tr- traditional blade, or is there an advantage to the back bevel?" <laughs> it it depends on what you're going to do with it. Uh, a broad hatchet, another term for it is a hewing hatchet. And uh, the, you, we think of them as having a flat back and a single bevel. Technically, that back is not flat. It's slightly cupped. Uh, I think of it as an extremely shallow in-cannel gouge that's six inches wide. Uh, so you're getting a bit of a scooping action there. And so if somebody has beveled that back of it, uh, it you might be cutting away a lot of metal to reestablish its original shape. And uh, the worst thing you can do is make it dead flat, because then it tends to dig in. You can hew flat stuff with a double bevel hatchet. So it might be the thing to do with a hatchet like that. Without seeing it, it's hard to say, but it might be gradually removing that back bevel might be the way to go, rather than grinding it all away in one go. Okay. Depends awesome. on how much steel is in the hatchet. Well, well, thanks. I know. We, thanks for your short time. We're we're kind of cranking through uh, yeah, our presenters, pleasure. but I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you. you we're speed being dating. Here. Yeah, appreciate yeah, it. We're speed dating. Speed yeah. dating. <laughs> Find woodworking law. <laughs> See you later. Find the woodworker of your dreams. <laughs> Who's next? There's a bevy. Is it Joshua Klein? Where's Joshua? Oh, I'm not supposed to Where's give away Joshua? the surprise, am I? Oh, you're putting a picture of him up right now. Ben says. <laughs> So, well, it's very, it's, no one's saying anything, so I'm well, going to say something. Keep on talking, man. Keep talking. You all set? Josh, yeah. Uh, yeah. my next guest, or our next guest, I should say, is uh, Joshua Klein, uh, the editor of Mortison Tenon magazine, which is a, a really cool once a year publication that he started I guess last year and we just got the second issue yeah. uh, welcome yeah. and thanks for coming to Fine Woodworking Live he, he put up a great display here it's really kind of putting our booth to shame <laughs> <laughs> well thank you um, so how, how did you go from woodworking to uh, part publisher uh, well, it started for me, um, I was actually trained in conservation work, so I was working on antique pieces. And I saw um, over and over in my studio 18th and 19th century pieces, got to uh, take them apart and see the joinery. And I thought, whoa, this is nothing like I was trained or saw before. Um, and I, I was excited about that. Um, at the same time, I was also seeing all the tool marks uh, from you know, the stuff that was built without any machines. And I got excited about that process and understanding it. Um, and, and, you know, I heard hand tools maybe were slower than machines. And I looked at it and I thought, no way, this is fast work. So that was kind of the, the birth of Mortis and Tenon, uh, wanting a publication that was kind of excited about that, focused on that kind of uh, woodworking. Yeah. And so you're, you're uh, strictly a hand tool guy. <laughs> and you've got um, your own, you, you actually have your own furniture making company. And Well, uh, so now I was, do, I was doing conservation work. 
pretty much exclusively, and then I launched this publication, and it has completely eclipsed everything else I was doing. So sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that's I'm spending all my time on Mortis and Tenon. Great. Well, so. we we appreciate you coming in. We have a a question for you. It's a finishing question, and yeah. it is from a reader named John, and he says I've been using denatured alcohol as a solvent for mixing shellac. But I'm curious if I need to be looking into finding a source for Everclear or another solvent. Does it really make a difference if in the finished product? Um, I, I guess what I would say is um, you can you can use Everclear, uh, but the, the problem with it is just that you're gonna basically you're gonna have to pay the alcohol tax on it. Um, the reason that uh, denatured alcohol is denatured is they add a, a pollutant, a, a poison, so that you can't drink it. That's all it is. So the only thing I would say about that is what you want to be careful of is a, a lot of the denatured alcohols on the shelf in the hardware store are about 50% of the poison. So the wow. methanol is a lot of times the, the poison that's used. Methanol uh, will cause... That, that uh, explains all the days I miss after I do shellac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so if you have a... <laughs> if you have a 50% uh, methanol mix, uh, what that can do primarily, it's, it's your eyesight that it's going to damage. So what I'm looking for is as little uh, uh, poison in there as possible, as little methanol. And if you look on the back of the can, it'll, it should say 95% ethanol, 5% okay. methanol, etc. Oh. Um, uh, unfortunately, there aren't that many brands that are available that way. Um, but what I did find is um, the... The, the one brand that's consistent across the board, you can find everywhere, is Clean Strips Green. The green Dena label, the, right? the green yeah. label, yeah. you know, the uh, environmentally friendly denatured alcohol because it's just okay. almost all ethanol. Cool. Well, what about uh, water in denatured alcohol? Because I see a lot of, uh, you know, companies or some companies selling anhydrous denatured alcohol. Yeah. And the idea, I guess that is if there's water in the denatured alcohol, it's, it's problematic for the shellac. So they try to either eliminate it completely or there's just a tiny percentage of water. Yep. Is there any, is there any water to that story? <laughs> uh, I have never it's had an wet. issue. Never I have had. never had an issue with it. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, alcohol is, is uh, drawing moisture into it. Sure. So if you leave it open, that's going to be a yep. problem. Right. So for me, I think that's more theoretical. I've uh -huh. never had any issues with it. Yeah. So Joshua, I'm a little disappointed you haven't distilled your own alcohol yet. <laughs> that we know. I just haven't talked about it. Where's the whiskey barrel project? Yes. <laughs> I've heard something about roasting coffee beans in a popcorn Oh popper. my God. Who told you that? <laughs> was was uh, that Freddie Roman? Freddie Roman. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I might have done that. <laughs> well, thanks, Josh. Well, can I? Can I, I, I want to extend an invitation to Josh to come down to Fine Woodworking and use our 16-inch Italian joiner. Because <laughs> <laughs> once you do that, I promise you, you will never join. My hand I again. already have a joiner, but yeah. it's wooden. It's, right. it's wooden. Yeah. <laughs> it works differently. Yes, it's a little different. You come use that Italian joiner. Uh, sounds hey, good. Josh, yeah. thank, thanks for for five minutes with us on our speed dating episode. Yeah. <laughs> thank and thanks you. again. For Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having us. Great having you. All right, Josh. Take care. Oh, who do we have next, gentlemen? Uh, oh, this is the man fine. for me. It's Vic This is our friend from Canada. You can tell we got a Canadian in the house, eh? Yes. Now, do we have a translator? <laughs> yeah. Someone who can speak Canadian? Yeah, there, there's a photo app. Hey, Vic. How you doing, buddy? You always you disturb buddy? me. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Are these for uh, me? Joining yeah. us. Are these my crackers? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
you, if you, you eat Lincoln. those in lieu of pay. We have, <laughs> we have Vic Tesselin, who is a, a product manager at... Uh, no, uh, I'm not a product manager. That's technical Wally. advisor. You're a technical advisor yeah. at... Uh, at Lee Valley Veritas, and he's also giving a presentation on his uh, minimalist approach to woodworking. And uh, we're am. happy to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to, to get some humor again to, on the podcast. Does, all he does is cut the board. That's it. That's it. Cut the what? He just cuts the board. It's a minimalist approach. Yeah, I don't make anything <laughs> just, with it. Just I just cut the, the board. board. <laughs> <laughs> you never should have had Vic and I at the same time. Not not sitting no, next to no, each no, other either. No. <laughs> well, we're just we're just happy that you were able to get across the border. Yeah, well, it um, took some digging, but we did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let you me try to catapult first. <laughs> yeah, there was a wind velocity problem. <laughs> <laughs> so. Let me hit you with a, a question before we, we get to anything else, because Ben is telling me to hurry. No? He's, now, now he wants me to go, go long. long. Go Can long. You make your mind this, up. Ben. Go um, long. Okay. Well, yes. yeah, so let's talk, let's talk about minimalist woodworking. You, you wrote a book about it. What's kind of a 30-second summary? <laughs> Well, you know, the thing I got tired of hearing from people was that, you know, if I couldn't have a table saw or if I couldn't have a, a run a router in my apartment, that I couldn't right. woodwork, yep. right. you know, and I love woodworking so much that I can't imagine somebody having to, to deal with that. You know what I mean? For me, it's as much therapy as anything else as making nice stuff. And so I know, and we know that if you're um, if you have a small space, a bench, maybe some hand tools, mm-hmm. you can do a lot of cool stuff with that. Um, so I wrote that book basically because I didn't want people to give excuses for not woodworking. I mean, there's cool. no excuse. Yeah, you know, there's carve no a excuse. spoon for criminy's sake. You know, do yeah. something. Criminy, criminy, criminy. Yeah, yeah, that's the. You had a small nice shop. Room. When I came up to do the photos for your article, that shop. I had to stand in your neighbor's house to take the photos. It was, it was small. That's right. That, and small. then they served a supper, which they was did. nice. It was very nice. Yeah, yeah. No, that I mean, was very cool. poutine, which is disgusting. But. Yeah, it was. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, it's true. When you were up there, you like, you know, you were standing like looming right over me and trying to take shots and stuff. The yeah. new shop's nice though, but yeah, but yeah, like I mean, that was a one-car garage. Right. And the smallest I've ever been in was forty square feet. So oh, wow. imagine okay. me in forty square feet. Like it's you know. Um, but basically, I, I called it the Harry Potter. Harry Potter shop because it was under a set of stairs in the basement uh-huh. and I had enough room for a bench and some tools on the wall and I could I could stand up straight for about two feet of it and yeah. then otherwise I had to be hunched under the stairs so I'm going to start calling you the boy who lived yeah, <laughs> yeah and thrived <laughs> yes Gobby Gobby <laughs> well let's get to uh, it's a long question I apologize Vic yeah um, okay this is it a one multi-parter? is this one is from Ben. I have a but feeling we'll, it's from we'll that guy over there. Simple words. Yeah, he's denying yeah. it, but <laughs> can you put see. it into Canadian for me? Yeah, <laughs> I'll do it backwards then. Okay. Um, I've been trying to set up my extremely small basement shop to work on projects that require only hand tools. This is necessary due to our small house with very little soundproofing. Lately, I've been making picture frames and small boxes, but I haven't found a good solution for cutting rabbits with my current tool set. Block plane, smoothing plane, jack, and router planes, and some Japanese saws. What is the most efficient slash cost-effective method for cutting rabbits and grooves by hand? Do I need to invest in a skew rabbit plane? I haven't had good results cutting with a saw and a straight edge, then cleaning out with a chisel. Right, okay. Um, Does he have a router? (laughs) 
Does he have a table saw? Does he have a table saw? I mean, an old school router, not a. Yeah, he said he has a router. He says he has a router. He has a router. Yeah. Okay, so the router planes. The router plane can do your grooves easy, right? Even if you don't have the normal fence that would come on an old vintage one, you can easily hot glue a fence to it and you know cut a groove that way. It's not the most efficient way, but you can totally do it. Um, one tool that's kind of missing from the basic toolkit that I see is a shoulder plane. Hmm. And so I always teach a technique when I'm teaching rabbits where you can strike a line with a marking gauge and then come along that marking, uh, marking, marked line with a chisel and just cut out like a V-shaped piece out. And then you can lay, because if you look at old um, like vintage um, rabbit planes, they looked basically like a shoulder plane. There was no sure. fences, there was no yeah. depth stops, there was right. none of that stuff. And so if you take your regular shoulder plane and just lay it in at an angle oh, cool. and start making the cut following that groove, then you slowly tip the plane up to vertical. Now, this still takes a little bit of doing and you're not able to rely on a fence or a depth stop, but with a square, as you get close, you know, you check with the square and then you start to make any corrections or any biases that you have to fix. And before you know it, you have a rabbit. So for me, um, the, the shoulder plane is a great tool for that because, I mean, I think everybody should have a shoulder sure. plane. Yeah, even, yeah. even machine jockeys should have a shoulder plane because you always have to do a little bit of tweaking yes. to a joint. Um, so for me, I think that that's, that's the missing part. Now, of course, you know, there's rabbit planes galore, right? I mean, you can, you can get skew block rabbits, you can get regular rabbit planes, you can get all kinds. Um, but I think with, if, if you include the shoulder plane in your basic kit, I think that that's, that can do a lot for you. Yeah, so that's how I would do it. Do we, awesome. do we have time for Vic to tell a story? We do. So, yeah. This oh, Vic, dear. Get the sensor ready. This is unscripted. <laughs> this is a great story because we have good jobs working at Fine Working Magazine, right? I mean, we love our jobs. It's the greatest job in the world. Vic has a great job working at Veritas. Yeah. Can you tell a story about how you got that job? This is the most absurd thing I have ever heard. Just tell the story about sort of how you got the job and what, how you ended up having the job you have. Because it's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, I, I'm, it's I'm, ridiculous that this worked. <laughs> Well, I now, didn't really. Now he has to tell. <laughs> I did. Yeah, so I guess I'm stuck telling the yeah, story. Yeah, you gotta tell the story. Um, so I was working at um, Canadian Woodworking Magazine at the time, and I was looking for a little bit of a change, a pace, and so uh, I actually contacted Wally, who's here with us, um, because he was my contact with the magazine. He would get me press releases and all that kind of stuff, and so I just put the feelers out saying, "Hey, listen, is it possible that you know there might be some work at Lee Valley that you know?" And and to be honest, what I was thinking was um, the store. Right, like I could have, like that would have been awesome. Right, go work at the store, yeah. surrounded by tools, talking with woodworkers, helping them pick what they needed. I thought, oh, this is great, it's pretty good. And so I mentioned it to Wally, and Wally said, okay, well that's cool. Let me um, let me look around a little bit. And so I think it was like that afternoon, I get an email from the president, Robin Lee, who I knew prior to that because. Um, he said, you know, like he he let me go through the collection as like when I was with the magazine oh, and okay. stuff like that. They're, so they're your private collection, yeah, the, the, the yeah the research and development collection, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the cool thing was Robin sends me this email and he says, um, yeah, he said, listen, are you able to come and meet me tomorrow at such and such time? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And he says, okay, great. And in the email, he sends, don't wear a suit. So I thought, okay, well. 
that kind of sounds like an invitation to an interview, maybe. Or Don't a hot wear tub a suit party. or a yeah. Yeah. Well, I was pretty certain it wasn't a hot tub party. Uh, so. <laughs> Why did Jeff, I have to tip aside him? Is dying right I know. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so That's I it. we're done. So I show up and I start talking with Robin, and I'm I, like, I'm I'm treating it like I'm in an interview, and so I'm saying like, you know, th- this is what I think I could bring to the company, and this is, you know, yeah, I'm selling myself, mm-hmm. and Robin kind of starts smiling and sort of chuckles a little bit, and um, I so I, I asked, I said, what what are you laughing at? And he says, well, um, you're treating this like it's a job interview. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. So I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? And so he says, he says, no, no. He says, not, that's not what I mean. He said, I already plan on hiring you. He says, I just don't know what you're going to do yet. I know, isn't that crazy? And I was like, what? Uh, he says, yeah. I know what you do. I know what you're about. He said, I want you to work for me, but I just don't know what you're going to do for me yet. And so we kind of back and forth a little bit. And he said, like, what are you interested in? And I'm like, research and development. <laughs> and he's like, well, uh, yeah, everybody's interested in research and development. He says, are, like, do you have any other? I'm like, research and development. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he said, okay, leave it with me. And then called me back in about a week later and said, listen, um, you're going to be the woodworking technical advisor. You're going to be accessible from all... Uh, aspects of the company if there's you know if they have woodworking questions or you know maybe you know photography can ask you know how you hold a specific tool or you know provide information about copy for the you know so it's this job that um like I, i just you know a lot of people talk about oh i love my job like I love my job. Cool. We need one of those at the magazine. Yeah. What, um, I mean, <laughs> technical advisor? Yes. Yeah. 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 Is this an interview? <laughs> this is not no, an interview. This is, like this an interview. is not. It. But anyway, so it's cool because every day is different, right? Like, so sometimes yeah. I'm working on instructions. Sometimes I'm working on uh, video because I do the videos for the Veritas channel, uh, for the Lee Valley channel, pardon me. Um, and then I do a lot of traveling to, you know, all the different countries where our tools are carried so, and get to are, do cool stuff. Are you the uh, technical advisor for the April Fool's video? I, I have a part in that. <laughs> uh, this year, uh, so I always do the voiceover because I, someone said that I, I can sound animated. I, I don't like know what a, that like means. Like your animation or that you <laughs> yeah, sound, I, oh, hey. Yeah, well, I don't, I really don't know. They yeah. didn't really specify, so I don't know if it's because I'm animated or if I... Yeah. See, the funny is, uh, after I heard this story, I called Wally and tried the same thing, and he told me that Tim Hortons was hiring. <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> Well, and then, like that, uh, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but Tim Hortons has some pretty high, stand- high yeah. standards. I couldn't even get a job at Hortons. I ended up at Canadian Tire. Yeah. It was yeah. Oh, no, Canadian Tire is cool, too. What? That's a neat what? place. <laughs> what are we doing here? I just saw Chris Baxter walking by, and he was telling us that we were gabbing too much. Yeah. yeah. Oh, is that right? <laughs> he was giving oh. us the evil yeah. eye there. Oh, did he? Yeah. Maybe oh. it's time that we wrap it up. Is that what we're trying to say? No. No, Wilbur Pan is coming. Wilbur Pan Pan is coming. Yeah. One Ah, more guest. All right. Wilbur Pan, another guy. Yes. He's a person. Wilbur. Yeah, you're off. You're off the show, my friend. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for uh, Lee Valley for coming. All right. Cool to be here. All right. Here comes Wilbur. See you, Vic. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Hey, Wilbur. How's it going? Good. How are you? Pretty good. (laughs) Do you want to introduce Wilbur? Yeah, I guess I, this is Wilbur. This is my first, this is my first time meeting Wilbur. So, so Wilbur is uh, lives in New Jersey. Yep. And uh, can we say? Can I say what you do for a living? 
Or sure. Why don't you tell yeah. us what you do for okay. a living? Uh, so my uh, day job is that I'm a, a pediatric uh, oncologist. Which means you're a superhero. Um, which, Pretty much, Which is yeah. generally a, a conversation stopper. I've learned that over the years. <laughs> it's an amazing job. Yeah. But uh, also, what you, you're an avid woodworker. You love woodworking. Yep. Mm-hmm. And you work a lot with, or exclusively with Japanese tools. Oh, n- not ex- Mainly. Mainly with yeah, Japanese yeah, tools. And yeah. you have a, a, mm-hmm. a, a lot of knowledge about how they're made, mm-hmm. why they're made that way, and how they work. Yeah. Right? Right. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show, Wilbur. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, we need a question. Like, this we, was we, a surprise we didn't have a question. Guest. It was a surprise yeah. guest. Do we have a question for him to no. ask? No. Well, Wilbur does have a bandsaw. Wilbur owns a bandsaw. Band I, I do have a bandsaw. Yeah. Right, so this yeah. is Wilbur and I were talking about this earlier today mm-hmm. because we we have talked about we Mike and I like Japanese chisels. Mm-hmm. So and we've talked about uh, Japanese chisels get really sharp, right, Mike? Yes, I would say sharper than Western steel chisels. Yep. Yes. So that's not. I think so too. Why yeah. do you think that? Yes, yeah, so yeah. that's what I was going to get to. Uh, Wilbur yeah. told me a great, explained it very well. Yeah. So explain it to us. Oh, okay, so um, uh, this is actually something that I talk about when I you know, teach about Japanese tools. Hint, um, hint for next year? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and it has to do, uh, basically, if you understand how steel is put together, um, it helps. Um, uh, so, the sh- so the really short version is ultimately, steel is a combination of really hard particles called carbides that's embedded in stuff that holds it together. Um, and in my talk, I have a picture of a blueberry muffin where the blueberries are the carbides and the muffin part is the stuff that holds everything together. Um, and then because of that, because of the carbides, that's what allows the, the steel to remain um, uh, hard and take an edge. And, that, and that's how that works. So um, the uh, one of the things that's important, I think, in terms of how a steel behaves is how big are those carbides? And there are a couple things that'll um, uh, that'll uh, control that. So number one is, do you have other alloying a- alloying agents in in the uh, steel? Um, and there are reasons for putting them in, but they will change the um, size of the carbides. And generally, they'll make them larger. Not always, but that's you know, usually you know, what happens. Um, the second thing that holds true for Japanese. Um, um, uh, uh, steels is that um, uh, Japanese chisels and plane blades are made with a forged um, uh, welding process where the blacksmith basically heats up the steel and pounds the heck out of it um, to laminate the soft layer and the hard layer together. And what that does is um, the carbides are physically broken down into smaller and smaller bits and they're dispersed more evenly through the, uh, through okay. the layer. So think of um, like uh, two a cup with colored sand in it, and you add another color, and you shake it up, and the and, and it's going to distribute more evenly. Um, so those two things together uh, will cause a very even distribution of very very small uh, carbides. Um, and here, <coughs> excuse me, um, here I don't have data to support this, but if you look at the composition of um, the carbides in um, uh, Damascus swords from the Middle East from like the thousands or so. Um, people have analyzed that and the carbides are significantly smaller than what you find in typical tool steels. And that's why I think um, uh, the Japanese uh, chisels and plain blades behave the way they do. So in my picture, what you, instead of having a blueberry muffin, you have a lemon poppy seed muffin. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I think that's what, what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, man, we know. I mean, come on. <laughs> Is it time to speed up again? <laughs> but so, but so it's like this. It's like um, 
when you sharpen a plane blade, for example, if you were to stop at 1,000 grit, the scratches would be really big, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as sharp. But if you go to 8,000 grit, the scratches get really small, so it's sharper. So when the carbide is smaller, it's sharper. But you can also go finer with your stones and get a benefit from it. Right, yes. So, right. so you can go like to 16,000 Shapton mm-hmm. instead of 8,000 yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. And now I'm going to start a fight because, of course, you have to hollow grind your Japanese chisels. <laughs> Boom, I'm out of here. <laughs> well, well, thanks. For, yeah. We're, uh, we're going to move on to, uh, I guess, the closing, but thanks for coming to yeah. the show. And thanks, Wilbur. Yeah, thanks for sharing that tip. Yeah, it's been a great event so far. I'm really looking forward to awesome. the rest of it. Thanks. 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 Thank you. Bye. Well, folks, that is all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. You can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, and while you're there, please give us the five-star rating, and don't forget to leave your comments. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs-up button. You can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook, and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening, and have fun in the shop. Adios from South Southbridge. When we, when we started, the, uh, the there were tons of people watching, Kisses. and there's nobody watching Kisses. now. Kisses. You're going to get a catalpa, a honey locust, an elm, box elder, sycamore, redwood, elm, bird's eye cherry, Curly cherry, blister cherry, a knotty maple, a red oak, a really interesting ash, the American elm, heartwood, sapwood, tulip poplar, tulip poplar, that's paint grade, Hank, whole trees, blue butt poplar, rainbow poplar, curly maple, white oak, clara walnut, applewood, a couple of burls with some madrone, Honey locust, the pink ivory, curly beech, ash, brown oak, redwood, curly wild redwood I had, Ohio buckeye, west coast maple, plain rift cut, zoom in, curly birch, soft maple, red maple, curly beech and maple, and the one left is curly red oak. You don't see cherry like that all that often. Nice curly maple. You don't see curly maple like this very often. Purple heart. Mixed maples. Cuban mahogany. American sycamore. It's like lacewood. Sugar maple. Cherry. Crazy beautiful cherry. Curly maple. An endless supply of scrap. And that can be fun too. This is curly oak, and that is highly impractical. Albizia lebic. You wood. Pink ivory. Red maple. Seaside mayo, pearwood, Cuban mahogany. I'm calling it Cuban. It came from Florida. We'll call it Florida mahogany. You would pearl. Really unusual ash. Crazy, really, really wild ash. Quarter sun, curly white oak. I like oak for all its historical sort of strength. And I like curls, because who doesn't?